hockey fans, welcome to Across the Pond Hockey Talks Volume 27. I'm your host, Chris Ivany, and before I begin tonight's episode, I want to remind everyone that the CIHL is back in action, kicking off their new season this Thursday night at Megabox. Game one will see the Hong Kong Tycoons face off with the South China Sharks, followed by the defending champion Kowloon Warriors battling the Macau Aces. Come out, watch, and cheer on Hong Kong's elite hockey league. I'd also like to take a moment to dedicate this podcast to a dear friend who passed away recently, Mr. Mark Depre. Um, Rest in peace, Mark. Uh, I hope wherever you're at right now, um, you're listening down. I know you were a a fan of the podcast and a supporter of the podcast, and uh, our heart goes out to uh, your family right now. Tonight's episode is brought to you by The Big Bite. Ah, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to talk about some food. You like burgers, ribs, hot dogs, milkshakes, or even some poutine? Well, you can find them all in one spot. That place is called The Big Bites. They got a cheaper than cheap deal on chicken wings. Three bucks, only three bucks a wing. Tuesday nights in North Point, Wednesday night in Shek Tong Choi. Every Thursday night at The Big Bite Flame and Grill in Shek Tong Choi is steak night. For 100 bucks plus a little bit of service charge, you can get a 10-ounce premium Canadian steak with your choice of sauce and unlimited fries or salad. Right about now is when I used to talk about a Thanksgiving special that they had. I even remind you that Christmas was coming, and they had turkey. And speaking from experience, it was delicious. Speaking of delicious, you should go over to their North Point location and try the PB&J burger. That's peanut butter and jam on a burger. Sounds gross, but it's not don't agree with me come on over to the studio and we'll drop the gloves check out more information on their facebook site at the big bite hk that's the big bite hk go fill your belly all prices are in hong kong dollars all right folks my guest tonight grew up in beautiful toronto canada and found his love for hockey at an early age watching some of the leafs all-time greats lace him up at maple leaf gardens After high school, he accepted a scholarship to Plymouth State University in New Hampshire, where he competed in multiple sports. Years later, he found himself in the middle of a democracy uprise in Thailand and swiftly followed in his family's footsteps, diving headfirst into the world of journalism. He's been living and working in Thailand since the early 90s and is known in Bangkok as the godfather of hockey. It's my pleasure to introduce fellow Canuck, who's doing amazing things to help create, promote, and develop our great sport in Southeast Asia. Please welcome to Across the Pond Hockey Talks, Mr. Scott Murray. How are you doing today, Scott? Great, Chris. Thanks. Well, what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> I was up all night. That's great. I'm very sorry about your friend, Mark. Yeah, um, thanks. And uh, just want to say, before we get going, you've done such a great job with this podcast. It means so much to so many people. So keep up the great work and... Uh, just, just super job. Super awesome. job. Thanks, so Scott. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to you because this is a story that not a lot of people have heard. Um, but before we get into the, to the development of hockey in Bangkok, let's, uh, let's find out a little bit about you. So you grew up in Toronto. Tell me a little bit about your hockey history and when you fell in love with the game. Well, at a very early age, I mean, going way back, it probably was like 1963 or four. My mother took me skating at Nathan Phillips Square, and I was hooked. And I remember actually going to some original six games. I remember seeing Bobby Hull flying down the ice with his blonde mane, 
Uh, and uh, so I, I was hooked, and I and I have vivid memories of the '67 Stanley Cup championship with George Armstrong accepting the cup, and uh, my my favorite player back then. I still don't know why was Bob Pulford, but I mean the <laughs> yeah. the Leafs uh, were just great, and they were, they were imparted on my uh, on my brain, and I just always, I mean, hockey was a part of my life, whether it was playing it or memorizing statistics. So as long as I can remember, mm-hmm. I've just loved the game, and then. In, in high school, I went to a, a place called Jarvis Collegiate, which was right around the corner from Maple Leaf Gardens. And this is like from 74 to 79. So back then, the Leafs had, you know, Sittler and Lenny McDonald and Borja Slaming and Ian Turnbull. And I used to sneak into the, uh, the practices and watch them skate. And, you know, sometimes we would have lunch in the same diner that they would. And, uh, you know, so we just kind of immersed myself in, in the Leaf Nation. And um, I was captain of the local high school. And, uh, you, you know, it was just, it's, it's just a hockey, you know, growing up in Canada and, and being in, in, in a major city and close to where that the team played, it was just natural to follow the Leafs and, 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 and be a hockey fan. Yeah. Any cool stories about meeting, uh, meeting any of these guys behind the scenes? Well, I just remember sneaking into you know, Maple Leaf Gardens one time. I wasn't supposed to be there and Sittler saw me and I'm bumping into Sittler and, oh, and he's yeah. supposed to tell me to, 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 to leave and, and, uh, he just he just chuckles and, and, and just says, "Be careful," you know. I mean, we we would embellish stories like we would sit down at a at a, at a lunch counter with Tiger Williams, and Tiger would just grunt at us. But yeah. we would go back and tell all our buddies that we had lunch with Tiger Williams. <laughs> of course. So I mean, there there wasn't a lot of discourse there, but it was just being in their proximity and seeing them, and just I remember just sitting and watching and work on his wrist shot, and just just seeing the professionalism, the dedication, just how much they loved the game. Um, I, I think it wore off on you in, in, in you know, small ways, you know. Oh, no doubt about that. And, you know, so you obviously, uh, you grew up playing, uh, you started hockey as a kid and you found yourself captain of your high school. Was there a point where you were, you were really thinking that you would try to make a career out of hockey? Well, I knew I was never good enough for, for the show, but I was hoping maybe like, you know, the third league in Hungary or something like that. <laughs> and, and so... Uh, I, I, interesting story. My grandfather had actually been a Rhodes Scholar from McGill. Yeah. So I, I knew I wasn't gonna go to Oxford or anything, but I figured I, I was reasonably good at sports, and my and my and my uh, my grades were good. So I thought I could get some kind of scholarship that combined both. Okay. And luckily enough, I did, and that sent me to this small college in, in New Hampshire. So that's Plymouth States in, in New Hampshire. And I know yeah. I mentioned earlier, you played multiple sports there. It wasn't just hockey. Tell me a little well, bit about I ran, that. I ran cross country okay. and, uh, to keep in shape. Mm-hmm. And then I played hockey. And I was on the, I was on the, uh, the lacrosse school team. I didn't really play much. They called me the billion-dollar cradler because one thing I could do, I could <laughs> stick handle and cradle. I didn't know the rules, so yeah. half the time I would go the wrong way. But nobody could get the ball off me. So anyway, it was a funny thing. So I, I didn't actually play much. Right. But I, but I, but I was on at training or with three teams during the varsity year. So, so you're you're the Canadian guy, and and they just assume that you knew how to play lacrosse. Well, yeah, lacrosse lac- lac- wasn't that big of an issue because I didn't go there. The problem was, unfortunately, hockey because yeah. I was the only Canadian on the team. Right. And it was miracle on ice. So yeah, I so this is very there. interesting. So it's 1980. You're yeah, in the well, you're in the U.S. and you're yeah. the only Canadian on your hockey team. Yeah, uh, it's 79. I'm going down in 79. Yeah. And this is, so the you know Herb Brooks is one of the guys on our team actually went to the U.S. Olympic trials. A guy named Ralph uh, Pete Kenya. He was cut. Yep. But but anyway, um, 
so they're running at me because back in then, you know, this is before Chelios, before Madano, before Ronek. The U.S. didn't have a lot of great players in the NHL, not not like today. Mm-hmm. So all these kids have been growing up. Some of them have played in the Pee Wee tournament in Quebec, and they've been hearing that you know they're not they're they're not any good compared to Canadians. Right. So I had a mark. I, I had a you know a, a bullseye on me the second I I, I jumped on the ice. Like yeah. they just pound me. Like six guys would. I mean, my own teammates would kick the shit out of me. Right. <laughs> and they were great to me after the game, but yeah. but or after the practice, but during the game they just pounded on me. So I got pretty confused because I'd gone from just being one of the guys to being, you know, supposedly the guy and I didn't respond well. Right. Anyway, the coach benched me and I sulked and whined, probably cried a little bit. And so the whole thing didn't, didn't go, um, very well, especially when the, uh, the U S won the, uh, the gold, because I mean, as much as happy, as, as happy as I was for them, they then declared that they were the best players in the world. And I'm like, well, no, nah, I don't think so. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. So, don't go too far too fast there so yeah i mean so it was it was they were tremendous to me off the ice but on the ice it, it was difficult because they were holding a lot of animosity that i'd have to say that we as canada had had you know inadvertently put on them over the years making them yeah. feel somewhat inferior and i unfortunately i've met a lot of american players over the years that um, i think it's a lot better today yeah of course but back then there there was this real real uh you know there was a real problem between you know giving american players credit right tell me a little bit about the hockey the level of hockey at plymouth state so was it uh first of all you, you played a full season there what was what was the uh, yeah, state I, I played but i went to be honest i was you know i get in a shift here and a shift there I, it, it, as i say i as i didn't score much coming out of the gate i yeah the, the coach the coach put a lot of placed a lot of faith in me being a star and when it didn't work out i quickly lost favor with him right but there were some interesting things one time we're playing i think we're playing a team called worcester state and i don't know how this happened but they listed me as being six foot (laughs) eleven now if you could imagine there there was no athlete professional or amateur that was six foot eleven back then anywhere right right? yeah so why people are even so people are coming out of the hills to see this six foot eleven canadian i come out of the gate i'm six foot one right at best they start booing me. They start screaming and yelling at me. You fuck. You, you know, you prick. You're supposed to be six foot eleven. Yeah. I'm like, I, don't, I don't even know how this gets. So then, the first first shift, somehow I get in a fight with the goalie. I get kicked out of the game. They throw a trash can on me. <laughs> oh my. At me. It was just so I didn't do myself any favors. But I mean, I, I look back in that and think, how could you know? First of all, a typo is a typo. But I mean, some of those guys were actually coming to the rink expecting a six foot eleven guy. Yeah. And uh, so they were a little bit uh, disappointed. So, so anyway, it didn't it didn't really uh, work out. As I never you know scored much, and I and the coach really got disappointed with me. Um, right. Uh, early on, and the problem was that I really put all my faith in hockey. My my family had 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 troubles. I'm sure every family had troubles, but mm-hmm. my, my parents had drinking problems, and the hockey had always been a, a safe zone for me. It had right. been a comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I'd always gone out to whenever there was trouble, I'd just go to the rink. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of athletes use that, you know, whether it's a basketball court or a football of stadium. No question. You know, it's yeah. your one place to go and escape sometimes the harsh realities of your life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when it didn't work out in Plymouth, I I was lost. You know, hockey had always been part of my life and I, I didn't know what, what to do. So eventually, I, you know, I left the school. I'd studied political science, but I went home and I was lost. I, I, I thought that somehow subconsciously hockey was going to be part of my life. Right. Not, I say not, obviously not in the show, but part of maybe in management role or playing in some country in Europe, something. Mm-hmm. And 
because it didn't work out in, in uh, Plymouth, I was, I just lost confidence and I really couldn't get it together to, um, to, uh, to try again. And I just, in hindsight, way too, too sensitive. So I drifted a lot. I, I, I hitchhiked around North America. I, I was a taxi driver for a number of years. I, I worked high rise construction. Mm-hmm. That really toughened me up. I'm just mad now that I didn't work the high-rise construction before I went down to Plymouth because then I would have been able to, to deal with it all. But, yeah. I mean, I was up there in negative 30 windshield, you know, jackhammering and driving nails for, for a couple of years in downtown Toronto, and that, 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 that really toughened me up. Oh, I couldn't agree more, and I think it's really important to share that part of your story because people often forget that when – Athletes, whether you're an aspiring athlete or you're you're a professional athlete, when that when that comes to an end, a lot of people are lost, and and you know a lot of people don't have somewhere to turn, and and uh, like you said, uh, it was a battle for you for many years, and um, and you you worked every job you could all around 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 North America and made a few bucks and decided to uh, to pack a bag and head to Southeast Asia. Yeah, it's an interesting story. We were building these buildings, and the way it would work is we'd build a building, and back then I was working union labor, so we'd get paid a shitload of money, sorry, a lot of money. Yep. And uh, I, I'd go to, you know, one, one time I drove to, Nicar- to, yeah, I drove a truck to Nicaragua. Another time I went to Colombia, Peru. So I was doing mostly Latin, South America. But then I was with a buddy, a, a carpenter, and he said, let's, let's go to Thailand. And I'd never even heard of Thailand. Wow. So this is, this is in July of 1990. So... Mm-hmm. With him, I decided to jump on a, a Thai Airways flight, and of course, as soon as I jumped on the flight, I fell in love with the first stewardess I saw, and then, and then, um, so we landed here, and I ended up staying for four months. Yeah. And um, he he went back after a month, but I quickly fell in love with with Asia. I think part of the reason was when I was growing up, I, I was always training outside, and I was always cold. I was always getting frostbit. And I know this is going to sound silly, but I just assumed that everywhere in the world there was a continental climate. I had no idea there was a tropical climate where, you know, you didn't get, there was no winter, it didn't get cold. Right. And so I got here and the fact that, you know, well, sometimes it got a little bit more rainier than usual, but it was just hot and warm all the time. Mm-hmm. It just blew me, blew me away. So I, I quickly had an affinity to Southeast Asia. Right. Um, so I had a bit of a drinking problem back then. Well, not a lot of, uh, a lot of what actually. Yeah. But I ended up getting myself checked into rehab in a place in, uh, Oh, the Ontario Hospital Insurance Program then back then arranged for guys to go to American hospitals because we didn't have enough treatment facilities. Yeah. So anyway, I went to one outside of Chicago. I think it's safe to say now because it's been so many years, but I was in at the same time as Elton John. Yeah. And uh, I can't can't really talk more about that for the privacy matters, but the fact right. that I was just in the treatment center with him was a big deal. Wow. That's so anyway, I was in there for four weeks. This is August of 1990. I walked out and I've been uh, – I've been – clean clean since that's incredible um, man that's so that's it's actually 30 years this month yeah it's an interesting story because the, the, the head the head doctor at, at the hospital was that was the uh gp for the chicago bears mm-hmm. so he he taught he 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 um not taught but he looked after gail sayers and dick budkus and all yeah. these chicago bear legends mm-hmm. and about halfway through my treatment i decided to jump the fence and and go out for a walk and because I, I was i i, I didn't think it's fine to follow the rules in a controlled environment, but I didn't think I could follow them in an uncontrolled environment. So I went to the local shop and uh, bought a beer and brought it to my mouth and, and thought, well, if, if I'm, if I'm going to drink this, then I'm screwed. But if I don't, I have a chance to beat this. Yeah. And I did. Wow, uh, that's incredible, man. Congratulations. And uh, that's something to be very proud of. But the thing was, I snuck back into the facility and they, they caught me. 
And so there was a big thing, you know, because supposedly you're supposed to get kicked out. Right. Okay? They did yeah. a test. I hadn't drank. And, and so the, the guy comes in. He was a really cool guy. The doctor comes in. And I don't know to say why or not, but because I started talking about Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo, yeah. he, he, he had a soft spot for me. And, and he said, okay, look, you're, as long as you don't pull any more crap, you, you can finish out your course and then we're, we're done. So anyway, I was in there for two more weeks and, and, and I was good. And then I was out and, and I, I've been clean ever since. The problem was when I got out, as just with anybody, when you're going clean, you need something to do. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. It's hard just to go to me. You need something to do. And I didn't really, I, I, I was floundering. I didn't really have anything. So I continued, you know, just messing about. And then, you know, I came back to Thailand and it was about the same time as they've had many uh, democracy uprisings since. But this was in, it started about March 92. Mm-hmm. And I was traveling around Southeast Asia, still clean, but still trying to find myself. And I got caught up in this uprising that it culminated in May of 92. Black May. Yeah, and I yeah. was just literally on on the street. Um, it, it sounds foreboding now because the students are starting again. It's very it's very peaceful now, but having witnessed it before, I, I, I'm I'm obviously a bit nervous. But I was literally on the street in between the protesters and the army when the soldiers opened fire, and it was very sad because, you know, I, I think the Koreans had learned a lesson because they they were using tear gas and rubber bullets but the ties at that time were using live ammunition and the soldiers and there was no need to right so i think to this day from what i can remember and there, i i believe that what happened you had a whole bunch of protesters that commandeered buses and they were waving flags and they were on one side of this big big uh, um road and the soldiers were on the other side and i believe that an order had come in to fire a volley of shots over the protesters heads Mm-hmm. But one Yahoo, just it all it only took one soldier, didn't, and he fired right into the protesters. And then of course everybody panicked and scattered every which way. And a lot of the demonstrators rushed towards the soldiers just because they were panicked. And then the soldiers just leveled their guns and shot into everybody. So wow. so anyway, um I'd seen when I was in South Central America, I'd seen people dead after the fact, but I'd never right. seen people killed in front of me, you know, and that really blew me away. So and what was, yeah, how did you react to that initially? I mean, I was in shock. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I I never had that thin red line. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, on on the rifles, they when they, when they point a rifle at you, there's this little thin red line that goes over your body. And I actually remember seeing that, and I thought, oh shit, because I can't, you can't move. Then you're either right. dead or you're not. But he, he right. passed it over. I mean, you're basically in a state of shock. And you know, I wish I could have done more. I mean, there was a, there was the problem was that there were wounded people all over the place, and the soldiers were still firing, so it was hard to you know, get to these wounded people, but it was, so basically just a state of shock because everything you've thought about or dreamed about, about how the world is basically collapses when you witness something like that. And I'm sure siege and forest foreign correspondents see it all the time, but that was the first time I'd seen, you know, witnessed or been part of anything like that. Okay. So, so before, did you have sorry. any journalism experience personally before this happened or before? I've written, written for the school, uh, the college newspaper in, in the States. Now, to be honest, it, Probably more information than you need, but my grandfather was actually the first general manager of the CBC. Yes, I've known that. Yeah, and my and my uh, my dad was a producer for CBC. My my cousin worked for the Economist. My mother was a, everybody in my family had been a journalist. That's probably why I wanted to be a hockey player. But so guys <laughs> like you know, Nolan Cat, Nash and Larry said all they talked about around the dinner table was 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 journalism. So I didn't actually study anything per se, but I, I think I took in a lot through osmosis. You know? Yeah. 
It's just listening to their conversations, seeing the way they talk to people, the body language. I mean, like, uh, like you yourself have become an incredibly good journalist. And I'm sure it's just a part of it is practice makes perfect. And just, uh, you know, but you, 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 you know when to ask the questions, you know how to listen to the, the answers. And it, it takes it takes practice and time. Mm-hmm, of but, course. Yeah, that's why I'm curious, because you found yourself in one of the most infamous demonst- democracy demonstrations in in recent times. And, you know, like the articles say, like over 200,000 protesters, people were killed. Um, and you, although journalism's in your blood, obviously, um, how did you feel when you were just kind of thrown to the fire? And was did you feel a responsibility or some type of sense of um, responsibility to just start getting it out there, to, to reach out to people and, and let people know what you're seeing? Well, there was a guy from the New York Times, and he was actually a stringer. This was before... This was before mobile phones and internet. And he was staying at a hotel about five clicks away. And I, prior to the actual firing upon the demonstrators, I, I met this guy and talked to this guy. And he explained to me, or he said to me, look, if you come up with anything, bring it to me. So in a sense, like I was, when I saw the information, I would run it to this guy. And I, I would, you know, go through the lines and get it over to either by bus or by taxi to this guy in his hotel. So I was kind of in a way a stringer helping a stringer. Mm-hmm. But this was the New York Times, and so it was a big deal to me. And I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have seen my name or anything like that. But the fact that I was giving some information to a guy that was helping compose, compose stories to the New York Times um, got me, you know, got me thinking that this is, well, maybe there is something I can do that can be useful. And so right after that, I was lucky enough to get some jobs through a buddy of mine, a guy named Mick Elmore, whose name will come up later because he's the guy that actually tweak me into the flying farangs. But um, so I got some jobs for the Bangkok Post. I, I they had a, a, a section called Inside Indochina where I would go to I would go to Vietnam and do retrospective pieces of things that happened there 25 years later. So I would go like to the village of My Lai and do a piece on what it was like 25 years later. Mm-hmm. I did that and I wrote some I wrote some um, business pieces. And then I, again, just through happenstance, I got a chance to to be a uh, uh, a job for an editor as for a business magazine. So I took that and then that was a regular paying job. And then I just have been doing basically some form of journalism ever since then. That's awesome. So tell me about the first, you were asked to write an article about hockey. How did yeah. that, tell me about that first article and how did that kind of kickstart all of this for you? Well, the, the guy's name was, was Mick Elmore and he's, he's now back in um, America but the, the magazine was called Metro, which back in the 90s was like the happening magazine in, 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 in Bangkok, where, you know, where to go, what to do. It was, it was the one that all the expats gravitated to in the, in the, mm-hmm. the, in the trendy ties. So he got a uh, he was do, stringing for them and he got a, a request to do this story and a bunch of guys playing ice hockey out at a rink called Ramkamang. And Mick's a good guy, but he really has no interest in hockey. So he knew I was a kind of, I was, I was still a diehard fan. Like I hadn't played in years, but I still followed the stats, all the trades, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. He said, why don't you go over and, 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 and do a story? So I went over there and I, I didn't know what to expect. They're playing in a shopping mall. And there was one guy who was good, guy named Craig O'Brien. And he was really the, the, the founder per se of the, of the, of the uh, frogs. He, he, um, he played for the University of Alberta Golden Bears. But all the rest of the guys, to be honest, weren't very good. And I started thinking, well, you know, I did I did have some moves back in the day. I mean, if I'm going to stay here for a while, I might as well get my stuff sent over. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, one thing came to another. And then a few months later, I was playing with them. And, and Craig had some personal issues and he had to 
basically go back to Canada. And I don't know why, to this day, I don't know why, but maybe because I've been organizing teams all my life or whatever, it just kind of went to me, even though I'd only been there for a little while. So very soon I was organizing a team and arranging for us to go travel abroad. And our first, our first trip was to, um, was to, uh, to Hong Kong in March of 1995. And what event was that for? It was the it was uh, I think I think it was called the Hong Kong Fives. The back Hong then. Kong Fives, yeah, they still. Dragon yep. Center. Yep. And there used to be a broad street, a broad, a broad sheet, a big a big paper called the Hong Kong Standard. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, I, they took you know, on the front page of the sports section. There was this page of me just rocking this guy, and it was called, and, and the headline was Sham Shui Poo, you know, or yeah. Slam Shui Poo. Anyway, so I mean, it was it was pretty pretty funny. So anyway, the Frongs made their made their debut internationally as it were in 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 march of 95 at at um at, at the dragon center and uh so dragon center is in sham shoi po and they called yeah. it slam shoi po i still have i i, I but because i hit this guy hard, they, they, they changed sham shui to slam shui yeah you know? that's a great so anyway it was speaking of good journalism so all of this kind of happened got thrown into your lap um, yeah, you've obviously been involved from the very beginning stages. So I want you to walk us through what you've seen since you've, you've been there as far as development. So um, you wrote a, you wrote an article, you get your gear over there, um, you decide to get involved in the hockey world. And how did it go from that to becoming the godfather of hockey in, in Bangkok? Well, I mean, there's a lot of people that have played a pivotal role, and I, I do want to mention it as we go along. So it's not me. I mean, I think in many ways I'm just a linchpin between the old days and the new days, and I've kind of been part of everything along the way. But there's a lot of guys that have played a pivotal role. Mm-hmm. But but just to, going back to 95, I mean, we just played um, shinny pretty much all the time. The big difference between Hong Kong and, 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 and Bangkok, per se, is like because the ice is so prohibitive in, 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 in Hong Kong, but not so much in, in Bangkok. Guys, a lot of our game is based on just shinny and practices, mm-hmm. whereas in Hong Kong you're much more games, right? right. So a lot of a lot of we just we, we just play shinny. We just play pickup once or once or, or twice a week, and that went on for a long time. And we started to run an international tournament. One of our guys was named Kevin Hall. He was the vice president of the Amari Hotel chain. And Kevin, you know, being in the hospitality industry was was great. He he, he hosted these tournaments. And it started in about the mid-90s and went to the early 2000s. And because of Bangkok's nightlife, um, you know, uh, it, it became the go-to tournament. Everybody wanted to come here. And Kevin did a tremendous job. So I basically ran the team, ran the practices, selected the team for the, for the tournaments and stuff. And Kevin ran the, the tournaments. And this went on for about five or, or, or six years. And were these early tournaments, were they like gentlemen's league tournaments and teams like expats got expat players coming from all over Asia? Or was yeah, it? Yeah. 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 Okay. Back in the day, back then, the Hong Kong Tigers and the Tokyo Canadians were the two best regional teams. I mean, they, those two would, would have these unbelievable, you know, showdowns. Everybody else was kind of like tier two. But they would come and they just dominated our tournaments. That that was when Smitty back in the day was unstoppable. Right. You know, yeah. Sneak around the the, the, the the high slot and just fire the wrist shot top corner. And then Tommy Barnes and Nils Baker. They were just you know we, we we were lucky to score a couple goals against them. We were happy. Mm-hmm. So we had these showdowns between Hong Kong and, and Tokyo, and um, Bangkok. We we weren't we weren't we certainly weren't thought of a regional hockey power, but it was the place that people wanted to come and play because they had so much fun when they were in in town. Right. So, 
those Sweet. those early events, they were basically gentlemen's league tournaments and a lot yeah. of expat players introducing yeah. the game to play. So when did it start uh, making its way into youth programs and the Land okay. of Smiles tournaments and all those things? Okay, well, you'll go back a little bit. The first okay. league was, was something called the Bangkok Hockey League in 1999-2000. It was run by a Thai guy named Thomas Nam. And at that time... And uh, part of, in hindsight, part of this is my fault. We only had one foreign team flying France, right. which I run. Mm -hmm. And so all our guys were on one team, and we played against six or seven Thai teams. And through that streak of about four or five years, we never lost to the Thai team. I mean, I think our record was something like 76 and zero or so. We never lost. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, so anyway, they really wanted to beat us. And the first year of this league, we won the championship. But in the second year, in the final game, they played us, and they won. Okay. And that was a watershed moment because they now had beaten the flanks. Yeah. And there, there had been a lot of ugliness that happened, a lot of fights in and out of the rink. And, you know, in, in hindsight, we should have done things a lot differently. But anyway, that watershed moment when they beat us gave them the confidence that they could. Right. But unfortunately, at that time, our rink that we were playing in, Imperial Samrong, closed down. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, and the rink that we wanted to play in, which was... Uh, at, at uh, Central World, they wouldn't allow us in. It was run by a figure skater, and they wouldn't allow us in. So for about three and a half to four years, we ended up playing in this very, very small rink. And so the program basically stagnated. It didn't okay. grow. Mm -hmm. And we were only able to play in these small rinks, and neither we, we got down to about six guys, and it just, it, it just stagnated. Mm -hmm. So... And, sorry, I'll just... So in the fall of 2004, we finally got into this Central World Plaza, and Scott Whitcomb had arrived on the scene by then. So I teamed up with Witty. And Witty decided to start this league called the Thai World Hockey League. And at this time, the, the Flongs and Thais would play, but they would be on the same teams. We wouldn't split anymore. There wouldn't be just a Flong team and Thai teams. Everybody would be mixed. Right. And that was that, that's so important. So this is kind of like yeah. the turning point of the development. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that time, and now more rinks are opening. Mm -hmm. um, and the ties are starting to take it more, 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 more seriously. So anyway, that that league went on for about 10, 10 years, and we had, um, you know, we had we had we had ties playing and stuff. But but really, again, there there wasn't a huge lot amount of development on the tie side. It really didn't happen until the last decade, when with the with the onset of social media and, and things like that. Because unfortunately, the Thai national team kept changing their coach. Right. And I think any pro, young program, you need continuity at the beginning. The, the guys have to believe in their coach. They have to believe the coach is going to be there the next year. And they've got a really good coach now, a guy named Johani Ihas, who actually has them now certified in, in IHF Division Three. He's working with them. They trust him. And, and so that's it's for the first time they've had a coach for a number of years. And for, mm -hmm. so in those early years, they kept changing their head coach, and they weren't really making any progress. And, you know, the... But it, it's different now. They've really come a long way in a short time. No question. I mean, I'm looking back at some of this uh, information, and the first time they appeared in the Asian Winter Games in 2004, they lost 52 to 1 to Kazakhstan. And actually, interestingly enough, you were asked to coach that team. Um, tell me, tell me how that happened. Well, that's a great story. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't decline because of the score. I just I fought a lot of those kids. No, I fought a lot of those kids, and I was thinking, well, this is going to work. So it's, it, what happened was that um, Howie Meeker's grandson was this in the This is country. incredible. Canadian think, NHL great, Howie Meeker. So I don't know if I, – I think I can tell the story now. Yeah. It's, he was in jail, not for, for – <laughs> 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 
he was in jail for for methamphetamine possession. He okay. wasn't peddling. They just found a couple of what they call yaba pills on him. Right. So he was in jail, and and he was in Phuket, and I knew he was here. But you know, when you hear somebody, you know, tell you, hey, I got Howie Meeker's grandson in the country. Well, yeah, sure you do. So anyway, I, I got to find out if this guy's the real deal because I figured if he was, this guy would be a good good coach. Yeah. So I, I, I he's in Phuket jail. I got a buddy down there in Phuket. I, I call him. I say, look, you got to go to Phuket jail. And I knew it was kind of it, it, you wouldn't believe this, but you, back then you could actually put the the handphone through the the jail cell, like yeah. the, the 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 bars. Mm-hmm. So my buddy goes down there, brings him a pizza, says hi to the, you know, yeah. says hi to the prison guards or whatever, you know. And I start talking to this guy, and I and I find out that you know he is the real deal. And I says, okay, well, when are you going to get out? <laughs> so I, I I'm I have to I have to not tell the Thai Ice Hockey Federation, you know, why this guy is delayed. Right. So anyway, we get him out. He comes to Bangkok, and he's the real deal. He puts yeah. him through practice. He knows the drills. He, he, he I mean, this is good lineage. This is really Howie Meeker's blood. Wow. So you know, Howie Meeker, you know, everybody knows, won the Calder Trophy, beat Gordie Howe for the Calder Trophy. Yeah. Anyway, so then he has to, but he's, but, but they've got to go traveling. You know, I think that the tournament's in Tokyo. So he's got to go back to Phuket to get his passport. So he goes back to get Phuket, get his passport, gets thrown in jail again. Oh, no. Day. So now I get my buddy to go back and we pay him to get out of jail. And yeah. So those of you who've never traveled to Thailand, it's one of those places where uh, you can pay off cops. Well, you got to be careful about saying that. Well, in this in this case, they weren't actually paying him off. He just paying like he didn't have money to pay his fine. Oh, right. So, we so they're just holding just him. Paying, we, were, we were paying his fine. Okay. Like he had an overstay after X amount of days. If you don't, if you haven't checked in with immigration, you have to pay X amount of money. So right. He, so anyway. So okay. So he comes back, and then they go off three months intensive training. They all go up to Chiang Mai. Whether they're in school or not, they all go. And they, they, this is the first time they've ever done this in their lives. Why did they're he choose training. Chiang Mai? Well, I guess because because none of the kids were from there. They thought if they were training in Bangkok. Right. Um, distractions. Distractions. And also, they've got a really good deal with the rink there, right? Okay. So there was a really nice rink there called Gatsun Gao. It's now closed. But, I mean, and, and they're attached to the rink was an apartment complex that they could stay. And there was a swimming pool up. So it was, there was a training complex within the rink. Mm-hmm. So he ended up really working them hard and training them hard. This is the first time they ever played they played abroad. But they threw him in the Tigers den. They threw him in against Kazakhstan, Japan, China, South Korea. Come on, and they just got they just got pushed around. Right. And the Hockey Hall of Fame still has those jerseys up. I'm trying to rectify that now because I don't think it's indicative of, of, of how far they've come in a short time. Right. But back then they really did get they ended up beating Mongolia because the Mongolian goalie defected. He walked by a work site in Tokyo or wherever it was. It wasn't Tokyo, it was some city outside of Japan and, and he, he just jumped ship. So they ended up beating Mongolia. Yeah. But but anyway, um, so that was really their first foray. It was the first Winter Asian Games, and that was their first foray into international competition. That's so amazing. I, I've heard the stories here of similar stories here, like the women's national team in Hong Kong went to their first international tournament, and I think I forget the score. It might have been a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, these experiences and these things, they're, of, of course, they're part of the. Uh, not not everyone's favorite part of the development of a sport, but you're going to take your lumps along the way. And, and must, what's most important is that you come back the next day. And, and, and you guys certainly have done that. So take us from there, from uh, some of the other major events that started happening at the time. So now you've got a national team. You're starting yeah. to have an identity with the sport. So what was the next step? I think we got to fast forward to... The NHL strike in 2012, that, okay. that's a watershed moment for a lot of reasons because mm-hmm. 
out of the blue, one of Johnny Aduya's friends emailed us and said he wanted to come to Thailand and, and go skating. He didn't know we had a hockey program here. He just wanted to skate while the, uh, the NHL was on strike. Okay. So we weren't sure if this guy was legit or not. But anyway, through correspondence, Johnny ended up coming here. So we sent two Swedish guys to the airport, uh, David Bloomquist and Martin Svensson, and they had this kind of code that they were going to give us proof of life. Yeah, I don't know if there was some guy impersonating the Dewey or whatever. This now he's with the Blackhawks at this time. Okay, yeah. so he comes here and and then he had this little little handbag with the Blackhawks logo etched on it. So they took a picture of that and sent it to us. And then okay, it's the, it's the real thing. He's mm-hmm. here. Okay, so Dewey lands in the country. Okay, he's he's just been traded from Winnipeg to Chicago. He's on this team. Chicago's already won one Stanley Cup in two thousand ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when the strike ends, they're going to be finishing off the 2012-2013. The anyway, so he comes out to our practice the first day. I'm not even sure. Like, I'm, I'm trying to convince him to play for us. I mean, because we've never even won our tournament, right? All these years, we've never even won our tournament. Right. So I'm thinking, Christ, if I can get Oduya, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> so yeah. I got a whiteboard for him, and I bring the whiteboard to practice. All the guys are kind of in awe. And, uh, you know, I give him the whiteboard at center ice, and he <laughs> – he explains this drill that none of us to this day could figure out. So for five minutes, we just ended up bumping into each other and knocking each other over, and well, that didn't all work out. But anyway, we're thinking, well, what's, what's with this guy? Wasn't a great so, impression. You know, we're thinking this ain't real. Well, maybe this ain't going to work out. So after the game, we've never had a pub in Bangkok. Like I'm sure in Hong Kong and other places, you go and you, you go to this bar after the game. Mm-hmm. What we do is we go hang out in 7-Eleven. As right. crazy as that sounds, we go yep. to the local 7-Eleven and we just hang there. So we have a record of staying there till six in the morning one day. But anyway, after the game, we're all just, a, just trying to feel a do you out. We don't know what he's like. We don't know if he thinks he's a disaster. So he comes to 7-Eleven and just chills with us for three hours. And then we're like, okay, this guy's totally cool. Yeah. And that's so amazing. he goes on and he, and he plays with us and we win our tournament and it's a major, major deal. And, and, and it's a lot of fun. And then he, he literally, we, we had a charity game for, um, the Red Cross about four days before he went back after the strike was settled. And he literally went from playing on Bangkok's crappy ice to playing in Los Angeles against the Kings in four days. Wow. And then from there, he went on to set up the Stanley Cup winning goal. He, he fired the, the puck that yeah. Boland eventually put in to mm-hmm. win the 2003 um, Stanley Cup championship. So the whole point being that the kids, and he was incredibly gracious, yeah. all the kids that met him got to meet a professional who, who was in his prime back then. Because at that time, Chicago's top four defense was the best. You had Keith and Seabrook and Oduya and, and Nicholas, and they were the top four D in the, in the, in the league. Mm-hmm. And the, kid, the Thai kids got to meet him and talk to him and follow him. They started watching NHL games. And so uh, I, that, again, was a real watershed moment for them to meet a professional hockey player right. in, 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 in his prime who was now playing and active, and they could watch on TV and say they saw him. And so that whole thing was really a big deal in moving yeah. the sport forward. Of course, there's nothing more important than, um, than the kids getting involved and have some, someone and something to look forward to yeah. and, uh, and look up to. So, yeah, and I so, think that was huge, too. Of course, and and um, so yeah, it was really it was really that was that was a really important moment. So was that kind of a, the point in time where a lot of the youth programs started picking up, and maybe some arena development was happening? Yeah, we, we had a rink in something called Central Rama Nine, and it, it was the first rink in Thailand that had proper glass, proper boards, proper dressing rooms. It was the first proper rink we'd ever had. Right. 
and that opened about the same time that, that Johnny was there, and it was in central Bangkok, and access to MRT stations. So it was just a tremendous location. A lot of the rinks had been kind of out in the boonies. Right. So this was very easy for parents to bring their kids to the rink and stuff. So just rink accessibility was a big one there. So not just Johnny, but just having the rink in a prime location helped helped grow the program. Right. And so the Thai kids started to get better. The Thai kids started to go abroad. Thai kids started to go play in Canada, in Norway, in Denmark, and more and more kids that had like maybe either their mum or dad was foreign or were take were playing hockey, and they tended to be a bit bigger. And so when they started playing other Asian teams, now the ties were having bigger players, and that 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 made a difference. Oh, of course. So, what are some of the events that started around that time, and some of the big tournaments that are still being played in Thailand? Well, the the, the TWHL eventually came to an end. First of all, I got to digress here. I, I got to mention Scotty Whitcomb because yeah. a lot of the hockey. In, that we're playing now is a big, big, big uh, result of, of, of Scotty. He, he comes from uh, Wisconsin and he came here, incredible passion to the game. He's got his own jersey company now called Jock Sports, which a lot of teams use. But Scotty really pioneered the Thai World Hockey Association. And all he took the, the tournaments that Kevin Hall had started and took them uh, three steps further. Like he's got, you know, he, he has got this old timers tournament that we usually run in March and in October. And he really did a tremendous job of, of spreading the game. Like he also helped monetize it. I was never, never good at that. So anyway, Scott developed these two big tournaments in the land of smiles in, in October and the city of angels in March uh, on hold now because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And these, these helped grow the, the, the game internationally because again, the Thai kids could play against these teams that were coming in from all over the world. And we usually, every once in a while, beside do you, we'd get pros, you know, we'd get Vesa Toscala or Kuchera mm-hmm. or a couple guys that have, that have, that have, that have played. And, and, you know, again, rubbing shoulders against these guys. So these, these, these tournaments, these international tournaments helped give the Thai kids a chance and the Thai kids started to compete more. A lot of Thai kids were now coming from money families who could afford to send their kids to tournaments in Hong Kong or Singapore or whatever. So Thai teams traveled, started to travel abroad more, you know, and yeah. that helped. And then, I, I, again, you really have to jump forward to the latter part of last decade when Johani was named coach of the Thai national team and we started something called the CM Hockey League. Okay. Um, so Woody this is a Finnish, Finnish running, hockey coach? Yeah. So Witty got tired of running the TWHL, but I still wanted to run a league. So I approached two guys. I approached John Shaknovsky, who was the FBI agent in, in Thailand at the time, and Christian Olofsson, who was the head of IKEA here. Mm-hmm. Now I'm I'm a I'm a really good passion and emotion guy, but these guys are great organizers. They they just they they they, they dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and uh, so I approached these guys about starting a league, and and it came about. It's now called the CM Hockey League. We're in our fifth year, and we have pretty much all the the, the top expat players and all the, the the best the players in the Thai national team. Wow! So we've only got it's only a four team league, so it's pretty competitive. It's the best players in the country. But that's also been, you know, been able to give these guys um, competition on a regular basis. Because right. for a long time, these guys would play a tournament, say, once every three or four months. But then they would regress because they weren't being given enough competition. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to give them enough competition on a regular basis to keep them keep their skills sharpened. Right. And these two events that you talked of, the, uh, are they all ages? Well, no. Uh, okay, sorry. Yeah. I, I unfortunately, as time has gone on, I've been more focused with the adults um, okay. that they're, they're, what's happened is that you've at, at Rama nine, you had a bunch of coaches, a lot of the Thai hockey players before 
they, they ended up being able to sell their hockey skills. Like they were able to coach and they were able to get paid for coaching. So the rinks would hire them out as coaches and they would get to keep a, a fair amount of the money that was charged for their coaching. And so a lot of the Thai guys were able to coach the young kids. And so before they weren't able to do it. They had to work there. They had to work, uh, uh, you know, a, a full-time job, but now they were able to make money coaching. So you had Huge players step, with yeah. the national team mm-hmm. who were now able to subsidize their living. You know, they weren't making lots of money, but they were making enough money to get by. And now they, they were dedicated coaches. So they were able to, 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 to teach these young kids. Yeah. And okay. You had all these small rinks. There weren't a lot of big rinks in Thailand, but the small rinks were fine for coaching the kids. So you had all these, these small rinks mushrooming up around the country with, with all these, these kids, these, these, these Thai hockey players teaching them because now they could make a livelihood out of, out of coaching. That's incredible. So in the beginning, of course, most of the, uh, most of the coaches were, were expats. And like you mentioned, Yuhani, he, he was a guy who currently, uh, he's still currently coaching the, the national team, correct? Yeah. And he's right. got a lot of, Yuhani, Yuhani doesn't take any grief from anybody. And right. I think, and, he, and uh, you know, if he wants something done, he, he's, he's very firm. And I think that, you know, he still has his, his moments, but I think he, the association, the Thai Ice Hockey Association, respects him because I think they see his passion, right. and commitment, and care for the mm-hmm. players here. Like he really cares about the kids and, and the players. He really, really, really sees them as his brothers or sons or whatever. So I mean, he's yeah. he's got a fantastic commitment. And and uh, as a as a coach, he's he's seen some success. I mean, you guys, as we mentioned, two thousand and four, from their very first Asian Winter Games to. 2018 joining the IIHF World Championship Division 3 tournament. I mean, yeah. These and, things and, don't, don't happen overnight and that's an incredible incredibly short amount of time to see that much development. So kudos to all of you for for doing that and and tell us a little bit about that that experience and and how they even got to that level and maybe some of the some of the uh, more experienced Thai players and and some of them that are even playing professional hockey these days. Well, there's a couple things. Um, the, the, the captain now is a, is a Swedish Thai guy named Ken Kinborn. He's big, he's solid, but he, and he, and he but he just does, you know he he can roll over people, but he's incredibly skilled. So he's exactly what the, the guys need. We've also got a young Thai American goalie back here who's not on the national team yet, but he's got a bit of a mouth on him. Like they're starting to get some attitude, mm-hmm. and they're, they're they're starting to get tough. And this is they they were always skilled, but they could get pushed around no longer. We've got a kid on named Yin on defense who. His, his wrist shot is on. His slap shot is almost like NHL style. So they've got. They've started to get a bit of an edge, not not dirty, but just not. They're not. They're not going to be pushed around anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is this has helped considerably. They've got another guy named Hideki Nakayama who played in Canada. They've got a couple. Like the thing is now that if you're going to play for the national team, but you've grown up abroad, you've got to come back and stay in country for two years. So that's a hard commitment for right. young guys to to make. Um, there's a couple of ties now, and I, I think we, we mentioned this yesterday, but that have actually have connections to the Washington Capitals, if you can believe it. Mm-hmm. Jonas Sigenthaler, who's playing for the Caps now, his mom is Thai. So he's the first person of Thai descent to actually play in the NHL. Right. So important. A, a couple of years ago, they drafted a guy named Knok Leeper, who at age of 12 moved to Regina from Thailand, grew up, and I believe he was the captain of the Vancouver Giants. Now, I don't know if he's on the, he's on the, um, the, the Caps uh, roster anymore, or their, or their, their minor league roster, but he was the first uh, full-blood tie to be drafted in the NHL. So 
what the point being that they're seeing there's a guy who's half tied playing in the NHL. There's a guy that's full tied that was drafted, and this this again gives them encouragement that they can they can do it. They can play. They can, they're getting noticed. You know, so this is a big thing. Before, like in 2004, if you'd said there was going to be a tie guy drafted in the NHL, you would have just laughed. Yeah, but, but it's now so they, important. Yeah, and no, so now they they actually have they've got role models and guys that are yeah, their age, exactly, and you know it, that they can relate to, and so. From meeting a Duya to actually now having players of their own kind playing in the NHL, it's, it's a big thing, you know. So, so the, the, the dreams and aspirations are, are becoming a little bit more realistic, if I can say that, at least to play minor pro hockey. Right, and I mean that's just having that that uh, that star, that a little bit of celebrity power. Um, it's so important to to motivate kids and. Um, what 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 have you seen as far as like like you said these guys there's now professional players from Thailand so are you seeing a big uprise in the sport or um, and is there like a lot more well, development the, going on now because of that? Well, we still need more rinks and and, and hopefully there, there's as I say a lot of the kids that are playing now come from moneyed families and there supposedly are those these plans keep getting there was ground was broken last week for a new Olympic size rink and there's supposedly another one being built so. We need full-size facilities for it to really grow because we're still kind of stuck with a lot of these small-size rinks. But I, I, I knew that hockey had made inroads about six years ago. I can't remember. There was, a, there was a post on Facebook about this kid, this Thai kid, sleeping with his hockey stick. Right. And, I mean, that was it. I mean, that, that had just said it all. You know, I mean, yeah. he, never, he, you know, he never skated in, in North America or Europe. He'd only learned about the game here. He'd only grown up with it here. Mm-hmm. And he was sleeping with his hockey stick. So that pretty much summed it all up for yeah. me. Um, obviously, COVID is, is, has stalled things a bit. But the more, the more rinks that, we, that are open, I mean, you know, eventually we, it would be great to have a, 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 a league – encompassing the whole country so you've got teams in chiang mai phuket whatever but i mean we don't we're not there yet mm-hmm. you know? but, yeah well you certainly uh fall there's this trend i mean it's happening all over asia and there's so many people here and, and the sport i think at the beginning there's a lot i don't know about in thailand but the initial reaction to watching uh professional hockey is usually oh it's so rough it's so violent yeah. it's so dangerous um how do thais feel about that well, a lot of a lot of the rinks don't. A lot of the games don't have hitting, and it, it's 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 changed a lot. When I first came in here, that was part of the big problem between the Frongs and the Ties because we'd grown up with hitting. So yeah. if you hit some guy and it was a clean hit, there was no big deal. But when we when we used to hit the Ties, they would take umbrage. You know, what are we hitting them for? And then like six guys would jump out and attack you. But but now so many of them have played overseas or have gotten used to contact, and it's not mm-hmm. a big deal. Mm-hmm. But they're still very careful about. Um, you know, not letting kids have contact at an early age. So it's somewhat regulated. And I think in, in the games here, there hasn't been too many issues of somebody being hurt through body contact. I mean, somebody could have lost their teeth through an errant puck or stick, but nobody's been really hurt because of, of a body check. So I think that when the parents actually see the game and, you know, up front, up, up close and personal, that they realize it's not as violent as, say, the reputation. And, of, of course, also the NHL has changed in the last few years. There's hardly – there's True. not so much fighting. Yeah. There's very few goons anymore. Mm-hmm. So the, the game internationally has changed. It's quicker. It's faster. And ties love cool things. So, you know, it's going to sound silly, but just to take your kid in, in a cool atmosphere to, um, uh, to play in an ice rink, 
Yeah. I mean, they enjoy it. Like it, 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 you can't get them out to play ball hockey in the middle of the day. You can't, they'll never go, but get them to play ice hockey in, in, in a nice cool rink. They're there for sure. Definitely. So Quick it, side it, it, note. I just looked up uh, Alex Canuck. He was actually the captain of the Vancouver giants last year. Yeah. That's yeah. what I thought. So that, that's to, to think that, you know, you've got, you've got a natural born Thai kid and, yeah. and just the giants to even name him that that's a big deal. Of course. That's amazing. And it's uh, certainly, that will certainly go a long way. I mean, obviously, this he's a big defenseman, too, and, and obviously he's very skilled. Uh, played four years in the WHL, was yep. an assistant captain, now a captain. Um, was drafted in the sixth round. Um, love, how, how amazing would it be to see him in a Washington Capitals jersey someday? Yeah, or, you know, even if he play, I mean, the, the, the dream is one time to get him and Sigenthaler back here and on the ice with these guys. And, and because, they, they, I mean, I'm sure they would just love to hear the stories and, and, and you know, get some tips from them. You yeah. know? And I'm sure, you know, I'm hopeful that that will actually happen. They have to bring back posters so kids can start getting posters of this guy on his wall. On no, I, no it, it's, it's, it's true. But the one thing now, the kids are pretty savvy. You know, social media has changed everything. Yeah. Back in the day... You might, you know, you might say to a kid, uh, you don't know who, who that is, but then two minutes later, the kid's Googling him on his phone. You know yeah. what I mean? So things, things change now. I mean, information accessibility and, and knowledge of the game and who's playing where, it's all at the, at the tip of your fingers now. Right. So uh, I think we touched on a lot of the, uh, of the details of the development. Tell me where the sport is at right now. I mean, obviously, COVID has, has thrown a wrench into things, but where is the sport right now in Thailand and, and what's its future? Well, I think the future is really good if we can build these these two um, Olympic-sized rinks that are being planned, and one of them is from the son of a very prominent politician. So I, I believe these are going to go ahead. Um, if you, the, Thailand won the last Sea Games, which is the Southeast Asian Games, mm-hmm. and Thailand and the Philippines now are both using players that have trained abroad or that are half European, half Filipino, half Thai, half half, half European, and. It was just a very exciting game. Like if you happen to see the last Sea Games, the rivalry between Thailand and the Philippines now is incredible. And a lot of the good players in the Thai national team are quite young now, which is to our favor. Like in the past, the guys have been in the mid-30s or late 30s. We have a couple of vets, but most of the players are in their mid-20s, even even some of their teens. So they have a bright future and that they're awesome. bond, they've bonded together. Um, really... Um, once, once COVID ends, people can travel. Getting these guys at more international tournaments, um, you know, building more rinks throughout the country. I, I think the future is actually very, very bright. It's just all about accessibility mm-hmm. and, and being able to, to travel to, to help these guys get to the next, to next level in, the, in their game. Well, Scott, it's certainly an, uh, an amazing and interesting story watching all of these uh, Southeast Asian countries develop the game. And, you know, guys like you who are at the, at the root of it, is, it's so important. But like you mentioned earlier, what's most important is that eventually you, you have their own people coaching their own kids and um, developing, you know, kind of a, a culture around the game. Because we throw that word out a lot and we use the word hockey culture a lot and, and it's confusing to people sometimes. But really what it means is that, you know, it's it's part of your family. It's something you're talking about at home. It's something that comes into your house. You know, it's something that's around the dinner table. And do you think you could ever see that happening in a place like Thailand? Oh, oh yeah, for sure. But it's 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 only going to be a small minority of the of the of the population for a while. I mean, you've got a population of what about you know the population is twice the size of Canada. Yeah. 
but but still the biggest sport here they say that kickboxing is is national sport but it's for the most favorite sport is is soccer and the right. country is passionate about soccer mm-hmm. so I, I i do believe that you know as, as the country grows more and more people will play i mean accessibility to not just ice but equipment i mean i would love to see something like you know play it against sports like we have right. back where yeah. people you know, it's still hard to get gear if you're a struggling family, it's you know you obviously you can't go about and pay 400 bucks for a kid's hockey stick. Yeah. So that's a problem that we need to address because it really you know hockey shouldn't be only for the middle class and rich. I mean you know it's everybody should have a chance to play, and it's not just getting the equipment; it's getting to the rink and paying for ice time. So that's one impediment here is that unfortunately um, kids from lower class families really don't get a chance to play and it's, it's hard to get access. Yeah. The accessibility is, is a big issue all over Asia. And, and that's why we see a lot of ball hockey and inline yeah. hockey and, and that all helps with the development as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. Because once, I mean, you know, if you got a good, good, if you can learn stick handling through inline or whatever, I mean, it's, it, if you finally get the skates on, you've already got the basics down of, of positioning and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, sure. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's important, but it's definitely it's definitely growing. But I have no illusions that it's ever going to challenge the, the big the big sports here. But I, I think that, that Thailand will make an, a niche for itself as as ice hockey contenders in this part of the world. There's there's no doubt about that. Well, Scott, I don't know if I could have ended it any better. Is there is there anything else um, you want to add? Is there any any interesting facts or stories that we missed? I just want to just a big shout out to you one more time for all the great work that you've done and please continue to do this because it's just, it's just amazing what you do. I will. And there's one guy I didn't mention. I really want to do because they call me the, the godfather, but I'm really the kind of the expat godfather. There's a, a Thai godfather of hockey a guy named Kun Jeb. And you mentioned it earlier, but all through this time, Jeb has had pro shops here with skate sharpening facilities, places that you can buy sticks yeah. And we tend to forget about the infrastructure of hockey, whereas, you know, if your Zamboni breaks down, how do you fix that? Or, you know, if your blade comes off, how do you, how do you, how, how do you rivet it back in? Right. And Jeb has been a real constant here for us over the years. Like, there's always been a place to get a stick or fix your skates, you get your skates sharpened, or if something goes wrong, Jeb has been always been able to be there and, and help us get through a problem. So just a big shout out to Jeb for all the work that he's done here. Awesome. Scott, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank you one more time for everything that you've done. And uh, thank you for taking some time to come and talk to me and, and share your story. And I know a lot of guys in Hong Kong are looking forward to listening to this because they all know who you are and they all appreciate what you're doing. And I think we need to keep expanding and, and sharing these stories. And, and that's what's going to help uh, in the long run to help develop the sport and to help... Uh, let people know that it's happening here and it's so important. So thank you again. I appreciate your time. And uh, that was Across the Pond. And that's a wrap. All right. Thank you to our amazing sponsors. As always, The Big Bite, Yardley Brothers Beer, Ben Marin's Photography, Sunset Studio, Print House Limited, and Asia Sports Tech. Finally, thank you to Lauren Orris and Fiona Chow who have helped us as advisors and liaisons to Hong Kong's hockey world. To support the podcast, check out our amazing merchandise on our website at acrossthepondhk.com. Check us out on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at acrossthepondhk.